I am really excited to start this new year with you all. 2023 is going to be an amazing year. There is so much here with this first episode today. You guys are really in for a treat with my first guest of the year on What's on Your Plates. Keela Parkinson, also known as Coach Kiki, is gracing this space today with just a plethora of knowledge. Keela speaks on breaking cycles of generational communication breakdowns, how it pertains to all relationships, and how we can help next generations learn from the things we had to heal from. There is a lot to cover here. Let's just jump right in. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is your host, Sarah of What's On Your Plates. And I am here today with Keela Parkinson, also known as Coach Kiki. She is a communications coach. And when you are confident, focused and authentic with your message, you are a magnet to those you wish to attract. That is her coaching philosophy. And she has helped many reach that mindset. Welcome, Keela. Thank you, Sarah. So nice to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. There's so many things that um, I really want to talk to you about, and I know it's going to be hard to like encompass it all in this <laughs> chunk of time. Um, so we'll, we'll see what we can, but um, communications coaching, I guess, since I've mentioned that already, give us a just an idea of what that actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a very generic kind of phrase, right? You can talk about anything and people have ideas of what they think it is going to be and what they want it to be for them. But really in a nutshell, I teach people how to cycle out of fight or flight in the moment. And it's very fun. I love that. And so really, you know, if you're in business, it's about speaking with confidence. It's about doing the next new tier of, you know, trying and testing yourself and growing in your business. If you're in a family situation, right? You're a parent, for example, I work a lot with parents these days, then it's about being able to think differently as you're communicating with your kiddos than maybe you were parented and kind of maybe breaking cycles, doing things differently generationally. And so again, communicating with confidence by not being stuck and locked in fight or flight. Wow, that's amazing. I think that pretty much everybody in the world can relate to that and benefit from what you're teaching because I feel like we do get trapped in the same cycle of things all the time and breaking free of that is something that requires work if you expect to have a different result and I'm interested in the way you talk about learning to change your brain um how, how does that work exactly? I mean, t- to me, when somebody says change your brain, I mean, I know that we can learn things differently and approach things in a different light, but changing the way your brain actually is utilized or ab- absorbing information in a way to then put it back out is an interesting topic to me. Mm-hmm. It, obviously, it's very fascinating to me. I've got my life's work <laughs> right now, right? I love that um, because you know, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, there was this whole concept. It was what now we refer to as fixed mindset. This idea that 
we have, we're born with a certain IQ and we achieve this certain level, you know, or maybe gifted or maybe like behind the curve or whatever. And then that's it. And that's your potential. And, you know, you need, you're expected to do certain things and you're either living up to your potential or you're not, but you don't have really any control over it. That was the whole concept. It was how education was based. It was how my education was framed. And now, of course, we know, thanks to Carol Dweck and others, so much insight about this idea that brains continue to grow. There is neuroplasticity. There is neuroplasticity even with trauma, even with Alzheimer's, even with aging in general, right? There is neuroplasticity with autism even. You know, maybe there are challenges to our brains, such as these things I've mentioned, that maybe limit some of our capacity for growth and change and neuroplasticity, but it's still there even within those models. And that to me is just gangbusters. I love that. It means that we have some control over our growth and our lives, which I love. <laughs> yeah, I think that we really can get stuck in the mindset of, well, this is what it is and this is the cards that I've been dealt, but no, that's not the case at all, is it? Yeah, and it's to me, it was highly depressing when I thought this is all there ever is. My mindset was often like, I'll never be good enough. I'm never gonna meet whatever that potential was someone else assigned me, you know? It was very fatalist. And so I lived with a lot of depression myself personally and with like diagnosed mood disorders, with OCD, you know, with a lot of things because I was perfectionistic thinking I had to be these certain things. And then also feeling such a limit of the things I did have control over. For me, it manifested as trying to be even more controlling over the few things I felt I had control over. So it's been very cycle breaking for me to realize that what I do have control over, A, it's not just my brain growth, it's also like my emotions and my response to my emotions. Like in that, for me, this really is about social emotional learning and emotional processing. I call it SEL for grownups, right? And it's because it's that concept of like, Emotions are important. They're information, just like pain is information. Negative emotions are information. If we go back to the concept that we kind of have four basically primary emotions, mad, glad, sad, and scared, only one of those is positive, you know? So we have to have these negative emotions. They give us great data in what's happening in our environment. And that helps us make the shifts we are able to have control over. Like how are we responding versus reacting to a circumstance? That's just so much information that I just, I'm sitting here like hanging on every word of, of the wealth of all that. No, don't apologize. It all is welcome and needing to be said. Um, pull back the layers a little bit for us in regards to how you found yourself on this path and why this is even a thing in your life now. Oh man. Okay. So of course, to tell my own story, I kind of have to go back a few generations. So just kind of to shorthand that, you know, of course, I, like all of us, I think in the U.S., I inherited this sort of generational um, legacy of a negative relationship with emotions um, for various reasons. I'll go back to my dad's side, for instance. Um, his mother's father had sort of like he had a gambling addiction. He lost a bunch of money trying to win back money after the Great Depression, you know, after the crash and the Great Depression. And he, in his not having coping skills to deal with that, he just disappeared and left the family. My grandmother was a toddler at the time. So that's that's traumatic for her. her. Her father has disappeared from her life and never to be found again. We actually discovered him and his second family just like within the last five years, right? So that's been like a real healing for generations in the family. But so she had that. And then his father, my paternal grandfather, his mother died of cancer when he was a child in the 1940s. And so the two of them, when they met, 
well, you know, they had this kind of wound to heal together. Like that's just one of these patterns, right? We all have so many of these patterns in our family lineage. And that was theirs in particular. He had lost his mom. She had lost her dad. No surprise that their relationship was fraught, you know? And so for me, then my father and my mother in the end of the 1960s, when kind of families were blowing up all over the place, they both were teenagers and their parents got divorced. And so they found each other and said, hey, we're never going to fight in front of our kids. You know, we're never going to like have these negative things. We're going to be married forever. And they kept their word on all of that. But they didn't know how to process big emotions because it reminded them of fighting. Big emotions were dangerous. So in my household growing up, we weren't allowed to be too happy. Like we weren't, we weren't allowed to stomp. We, if we stomped and walked away, my dad had this thing, which it was like, it's a funny joke, but also it's like, we don't want to replicate this one. Right. Like he would say like, Oh, you want to stomp? And you would go, yes, I'm mad. I want to stomp. And he would say, okay, you stayed in the corner and stomp. And he would time you for 10 minutes. And you felt like a fool after one minute. Right. And then you had nine more minutes of stomping and crying. I mean, like, I don't want to stop anymore. And he'd be like, keep stopping or it's going to be 20. Right. And so you had to stop. So the next time he said, do you want to stop? You'd be like, no, I don't want to stop. <laughs> you know, we would get in trouble for having like bad looks on our faces. Right. And like, I think of this and I think of my parents as being amazing people who did so many things for me. And this was one area for them that they came from really just very chaotic families of parental fighting. And they just didn't want to replicate that. So to them, they wanted everything to be even keel too excited, you know, too angry too anything was dangerous to them. Their bodies went to that's dangerous. And my need is to control the danger around me. And so for us, it was like, we just couldn't express emotions. And I am an emotional person and I just imploded really. So in my early twenties, as I was graduating from college, I had a ton of opportunities at my fingertips and I did not know how to make those things happen. And I, you know, for whatever reason, maybe perhaps some of this, I didn't feel like I could go to my parents and ask them, maybe I didn't have the words to put it into words. How do I make this happen? How do I move to New York City and take this great, you know, journalism opportunity that's fallen into my lap? How do I, how do I? And instead, I just sort of thought I've got to solve everything for myself because because I had become so resourceful at just solve your own problems. And they didn't really got me so far as a kid, right? And so I would think it was all my fault. And again, the fixed mindset. And so I didn't know how to do that. And so again, I imploded. And what I did was I tried to kill myself. And that led me on a big journey of getting all these diagnoses and learning like how to outwardly solve these problems. And it still was, a, I would say, a spiritual disconnect, right? Like it really wasn't solving the problem. It was giving me some, some band-aids and some tools. And then for years, I just spent a long time trying to figure these things out, going to lots of therapy, practicing tons of things, either taking medication or not taking medication and having a terrible reaction to medication, possibly because it wasn't the right medication, right? And so all of these things in a nutshell then became for me, one thing I did through that was I also self-medicated, right? When I wasn't taking medications. And, um, and so for me then, hitting rock bottom again in my mid thirties and going, okay, now I have a drug addiction and, and how do I find these tools? There was finally an overt spiritual solution that was presented to me through the 12 step program. And I had always had a spiritual something, some sort of guide. Um, I say that, you know, my 
I didn't have a beef with God. My beef was with the world, right? Like it was the world that I didn't feel like I fit into. I felt like I had this great relationship with what I would call like a higher power. And I use the word God, but whatever. And, and so, you know, I had a great relationship with a spiritual thing and I felt like the world was really hard for me. And that was part of my disconnect was like emotions were this etheric thing also just like spirituality and it always like nebulous and we don't talk about it and that's not right in society and blah 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 and I just felt broken I felt really broken for a long time so being able to then say hey I'm really good at writing and talking to people and having relationships in 2008 when sort of the bottom was falling out of the economy I was like I'm tired of freelancing I'm tired of you know just making money for my communication, what would I love to put my heart and soul into? And I had just gotten clean. And I was like, this is a great time for me to take a risk and say, I want to just reinvent. And so I took the risk and I developed the Coach Kiki platform and started communications coaching in this way where I went to people who were in sales and like really had like a lot writing on like, hey, you know, I need to really sell. And I got all this pressure on how I communicate. And I was like, are you freaked out about that? let me help you process your emotions. <laughs> and that was how it started. <laughs> oh, that's such a fantastic, beautiful story. Just, and, and there's so many things there. I have so many questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of them being, um, or, or maybe not even so much a question as um, just the way that, especially the generations that you mentioned really just, avoided and suppressed any kind of feelings and emotions. And that was true for my family too. Um, my grandparents, for sure. My mom, absolutely. And what do you think it is in the more recent history that has allowed us to break away from that? I think more as a society, we're more open to that than ever before. How have things changed to make that possible for people to feel safe enough to do that? I love that question, Sarah, because I've been wondering that too. Like, why is it finally happening? You know, and I look at this sort of a side thought, you know, and I'm going to circle back to answering your question as I'm like thinking out loud about it, right? So bear with me. But like, I think about, I had that same kind of moment when the Me Too movement was happening. I still go back to, I had this moment in the car with my husband, we were on some trip and the, both, the, both of our children were sleeping and we had just gotten some more news about that. And I remember I was holding his hand and crying and saying, why didn't this happen before? That's what was my question at the time. Why didn't this happen before? And I was like, why wasn't it, wasn't, and I said, what I said at the time was, why wasn't I good enough to have people respond to me back when I was younger and this was happening to me. Why is there a movement now where people are finally listening to women and taking them seriously, right? And so I really feel like all of that is, is from this certain vein. And some of it, I just think that collectively we've just evolved to the point where we kind of get it. There are so many religions now, you know, we're, we're kind of getting to the point where we're like, oh, this religion is really kind of a cult. And then we're like, wait, are they all kind of a cult? You know, like this idea of when we try to like regulate spirituality for people, we sort of get into this wonky territory, right? And so we're thinking about these things. We've seen them happen in so many different ways. We've seen, we've got thousands of years of human data we can look back on and we can get very meta with it. And we're globalizing in this really amazing way. We have more information than we've ever had. And I think when we have that information, we start to look for patterns. And so one of those things we're getting some 
great informational data and some patterning and some real knowledge about and we're actually really starting to track like how do these emotions work and, and what is the purpose of them right that's it's emotions the that how emotions are what they're born from um paul eckland and his daughter have this great atlas of emotions i believe it's atlasofemotions.org and you can see this moving map of like emotions and these beautiful colors and like where are they born from and what information do they give us and how do we read them in other people you know and eckland also has done tons of clinical work on micro expressions and how there are certain emotions we feel seven emotions in particular that we can't hide we don't have the poker face for there's some little tell some tick somewhere like just a little like sneer of the lip or like a little twitch in your eye and if you are really paying attention to someone else you're like oh they're feeling this right now so their words don't match what they're thinking right and it's so important it's fascinating to me you can take these tests online and like increase your ability to read other people's micro expressions which I have done as a coach and then given it to other people so they can read their teams, they can read salespeople, they can be better salespeople. And, and for me, like all of this is really, again, very much synthesizing to me as being a parent because I'm a later in life parent and I'm like, oh, how do we help the next generation? I get very excited about that part. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with you on that too. I'm, I'm very much um, encouraging to my son about letting him know that he can just be completely transparent and vulnerable with whatever he's feeling. And, you know, it's a work in progress and it changes based on the age that he is, of course. But um, for sure, I want a kid that definitely grows up to be a man that is, uh, is in a healthy way presenting his feelings to the world rather than suppressing them or using them as a, as a tool, essentially. I have to tell you, one of the things that I have learned that has been the most informative to me as a person, as an individual, is working with men, like my age and older. I honestly have to say that it has been such an honor and privilege to coach individual men and to have men be very raw and real with me. I do a technique that um, it walks people through something I call the BMT index, where we kind of break fight or flight down into its moving parts of our bodies, our moods, and our thoughts, right? And we walk through those things. And the first tool I give all of my clients is what I call a key motto, which is like an affirmation statement on steroids. So it's like something that actually will cycle us out of fight or flight in the moment, just a sentence we can say or think that really you'll see people's body language like shift and they're like, oh, okay, the worst is over, right? And so every client I see, we go through those two processes right out of the gate. And a hundred percent of the time, the men would tear up at a minimum. Often they would cry and they would be like, oh my God, I know what's happening. And uh, women will also be like, oh no, I'm crying, you know, and, and be embarrassed about crying in front of somebody. But the men will just be, oh my God, I can cry. And they honestly would have less of a response of trying to dry up the tears than the women would have because they had a place where they could safely cry. And it was amazing to me. And they were, you know, they would, even the men who were older than me would treat me like I was very maternal to them. And that was so, I, I've, on, I've been so privileged to that because the men I would work with would definitely start to cry and they would be like, okay, I'm allowed to tell you everything I feel. And it was so freeing to them. Similarly, one thing I learned was at some point in time with many clients, 
uh, you know, we would go through the five love languages, right? Especially if we were talking about the relationships that they had in their lives, even with their team members, if it was like a, a small business owner, for instance. And so this concept of like, well, how do you give and receive love, right? And how do you think other people around you do that? And how can you maybe give better, you know, team incentives, for instance, even just that on that level, right? How can you be very connected to that and make it be truly motivational to your team, for instance? Um, and so just first of all, having them identify what is your own love language. And again, 100% of men, no kidding, would say, oh, it's physical touch. And I would be like, maybe, or maybe you've just been starved for physical touch. Because after a while, I was like, it can't be physical touch for every guy. That's just not how the love languages work. And so I would get them to be like, okay, let me think about that then. And it would be very fascinating. Some of them, of course, it is physical touch, but maybe it would be extra things too. Or maybe they'd be like, no, once I feel like I'm getting that need met, like maybe I can be more expressive with my family and like hug my children more, for instance, right? Then I found that my you know, love language was something different. And so these patterns that were there for these men and seeing how, oh, gosh, stifled they were, that made me understand patriarchy from a less reactive and like victim circumstance, right? Like, oh my God, it was terrible for them too, because I hadn't really recognized that until I got to kind of see behind the curtain in this way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it's one thing, you know, for women to have felt and feel sort of suppressed in their emotion, but there was an entirely different thing for men and remains that way in our society. It's for whatever reason. It is just not as accepted for men to openly just express any kind of overabundance of emotion and, you know, humanizing them yeah. <laughs> a little bit, um, letting them know that they can also partake in all the feelings and all the emotions, I think is an amazing service that you're providing. And I mean, that really gets to the the core of them being able to communicate, communicating <laughs> their feelings and their emotions. And just, I, I've got to believe that in them giving themselves permission to do that is like a breakthrough for them for every other part of their life. Oh, for sure. And that would be so fascinating to me because one of my, you know, I, I'm a very big believer on, you need to have these checks and balances, right? I'm, I'm like, I think this is working. Anecdotally, it seems to be working. They're recording, self-reporting that it's working, but how do we know it's working, right? And so typically whenever I've been working with somebody, um, even if they weren't somebody that a company had hired me for, I would ask them then to provide somebody who could be uh, their touchstone, somebody we're going to check in with, maybe in a, you know, their virtual assistant, their um, administrative assistant, you know, their business partner, whatever, somebody we would check in with who would then be the person that would just give feedback. And, and I would ask one blanket question and it would just be, you know, with this person, since they've started coaching, what differences do you notice in them? And that would be it. Right. And so if it was not say an employer who had hired me to work with their team member, then um, they wouldn't even know what we were working on. And so I loved getting that feedback and seeing how it matched, right? Like it was so fascinating. There was one client I was working with who um, was very secret. A lot of people would be very secretive about, you know, A, even just working together. So I would never say who I was working with. I still don't say who I'm working with um, unless they have endorsed me publicly, right? And, and I don't even say who I have worked with, which is always interesting. I'll be like, oh, that's an old colleague, you know, give it to my family. But um, I remember working with somebody who has endorsed me since, and so I can share the story safely, 
who was, you know, very much like um, secretive in the beginning about the purpose we were working together. Like one of the team to know, I have a communications coach, we're working all kinds of great things for the, the company and for the office, you know. Um, but there was this, um, the, the private reason was I have so much anger. There are so many things I'm angry about, right? And I got this resentment, you know, and I need to work on that because it's getting in the way of how I'm talking to people because I'm so mad about this particular circumstance that I feel no control over. So we did a ton of work, a ton of coaching. We did some mediation with like the whole situation, but again, a lot behind the scenes that the team wasn't aware of. And then the person they had identified, I remember like just being like, what do you see different in so-and-so? And the team member was like, I don't really know. It seems like the communication is about the same, but they're just less angry. And I was like, oh my God, I love it because that was the main thing we were working on, you know? And so that person thought they were giving me the wrong information and it was totally the right information. You know? That had to have been really affirming. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm so glad I have an outside metric. I really, really need that. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the uh, spiritual disconnection you talked about. Yeah. So, um, it's interesting because, you know, I, I've said I'm in, I'm in a 12 step program and it's really important to me to be connected to um, something that fills the God hole is the language that we use in, in 12 step, right? There's like a, you know, something there that's missing or not being so connected. And for my own journey, for sure, I was, I was the kind of person who was like, God wants me to use, this is my, you know, this is what, this is what I've been given. Like, you know, um, I, my, my drug of choice was pot. And so I'm like, it's from the earth, you know, and it's blah, blah, blah. And so, um, I mean, it definitely wasn't the only thing I used, but it was like the thing that I really had a relationship with that I, I had to break up with when I went to rehab, I had to write a breakup letter to Mary Jane and be like, here, here you go. We're broken up Mary Jane. But, um, but I, you know, this God hole thing for me, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, a lack of like feeling like I was good enough as a person. I had this strange sense that, um, that my God, my higher power, my spirit, whatever, it's all the same to me, um, loved me for who I was. And that I had to act differently for humankind, for mankind in particular. I had to act differently. I had to beg forgiveness, for instance. I had to only say God was male, for instance, in the church I grew up. And I had to like do all these things that were so limiting to me, you know, and that it was just this understanding that my God and I had that like, okay, you just do this for them right now. And this is what you have to do. But it was so unfulfilling that I wound up being like, why am I even here? And it became this existential malaise for me, you know, just like, I don't even want to do this. And honestly, my thoughts can go there still, you know, and then I go, Oh, that's right. All feelings come and go. And I'm allowed to feel this way. And this too shall pass. And that doesn't become then just like this platitude. It's something I actually grasp and I can process it in that way. So I don't know if that's exactly your question about the spirituality that you're asking, but <laughs> those are my first thoughts. It's super helpful. I'll tell you that because, and something that you said there really resonated with me in that, um, you know, I had to, you use the example of calling God a hymn and yeah. you had, you know, whether that is what it felt to be true to you or not. And that's really something that makes a lot of sense to me because I have struggled with my own spirituality over the years because the way that I was brought up, which was very conservative Lutheran, there's many things about those teachings that don't sit well with me anymore. And it's always put a question in my head of, well, what now? Like, what, what, what is my journey now if this isn't making sense to me? And 
I remember not long ago, um, somebody said to me, you know, God isn't, you know, the white bearded man hanging on the wall that everybody portrays him to be. God is whoever you need him or her, or I, I have a really hard time even thinking that quote unquote, you know, God is even gendered quite honestly, but whoever that higher power is to you, they can be who you need them to be. It doesn't have to be anything really that anybody is teaching you or telling you or, you know, trying to enforce in your life. So that made a lot of sense to me. That really kind of let me breathe a sigh of relief a little bit because when you grow up in such a conservative uh, school and church and family, and then you're pulling away from those types of, you know, teachings, it really starts leaving <laughs> this question of what's happening with my life, what's, you know, the path, and it can put a lot of fear in your mind about you were told this was going to happen, and now you're not sure that it is. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a pretty like cliff note version of just without getting too deep into the spirituality of my own life, um, mm-hmm. of where it was at for me. So that made a lot of sense when you just said that. Yeah. You know, I can remember being in, and my, my church and my family weren't ultra conservative, right? Like my dad, for instance, he's a reverend. He was not a reverend when I was growing up, but he was an elder in our church. And, um, but I was about four or five when my parents were like, we'd like to start going to church. They had both been raised in churches, but, um, had, you know, were really, again, their families had broken up and they, they really were sort of like, what are we doing? What are we going to do? What's our family model going to be? Right. And my sister was born with a lot of birth defects. And that was very, it was a very spiritual experience for my parents, just having this baby who was in the NICU for two months in an era where NICUs were brand new, really. And, um, and all the like microsurgeries that she had, it was just brand new. And that was just, it was, living miracle for sure. Right. And so, and seeing her be on the brink of death, coming back from death, all these things that she did as an infant and and just the will and my parents and the prayers and all of that was so much for them, you know, and I, and I, I was only two, but I lived through it with them, you know? And so it was, it was very, very formulating for our family and for like kind of the backbone, the spiritual backbone of our family. So when they did find a church, I was part of the process, my parents were like, again, they were pretty liberal with that. And they were like, oh, we're going to pick a church that works for everybody. Right. And so that was kind of cool because we would visit a place, we'd come home, we'd be talking about it. So I had this formative early experience of trying on religions. Like, do I like it? What do I like about it? Do I like about how I felt after the, you know, we would, they would send me, we'd go a couple of times. They would send me to the Sunday school and I would report what the Sunday school was like to them. And then we would, I would also sit with them in the big room, you know, and we would, we would have our conversations about that. And so, and then of course we were trying out the people and all these things. And we lived in Indy, Indianapolis at the time that we were trying this. And then we moved to um, Yorktown, a little town I'm from, which my parents are also from, which is right outside of Muncie, Indiana, also the central part of the state. And so I had just these really disparate experiences, but they were all from within a Christian um, church, Christian Protestant church, right? So we tried all these different quote religions, but they were all Christianity and they were all Protestant Christianity. So it wasn't until I moved to Chicago that I was like, whoa, there's so much more than just Christianity, you know? And I was like, this is mind blowing. And I wanted to take that old, you know, lived experience of exploration that my dad had fostered in me. My, my dad, I say my dad in particular, because we had a conversation where he said, 
you don't have to be this religion. You know, he was like, you don't have to be whatever our family chooses. Your, your mother and I are going to join the church at first. You'll join and get baptized later when you feel like you want to. And then you don't have to stay this. I just want you to have a relationship with God. That's the most important thing to me. So I was like, oh, I can have my own relationship with God. And then when God became huge to me, my parents were like, whoa, <laughs> you know, but still really interested. And so when my dad actually, his retirement career is being a reverend. When he was 60 years old and went into seminary, he took this religions of the world class and he was like, oh my gosh, Keila, you would love this. And we had these great conversations about it. Wow. That is so inspiring to me that your dad gave you permission to choose. Like I've, that's not something that ever would have been part of my youth. That was, it was never an option. You were going to Sunday school, you were going to church. And um, for me now it's created probably the atmosphere of, I pull away from church and religion in order to actually feel closer to God. Yeah. A lot of people do. It's interesting to me because the more I really connect with spirituality and have this this grace and this uh, permission, right? This self-permission to connect with people from all kinds of different diverse backgrounds and thinking and to say, that's not weird and different. That's actually great for me to have this huge pool of people that I explore and experience with. I meet so many people who are like, I have a deep relationship with God or higher power or universe or whatever. And I will, and therefore I will never go to church. You know? Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, so where in the picture of all of these things, did you also become trained as a hypnotherapist? Okay. Yeah. So, um, when, let's see, it was about, I want to say seven years ago, it would have to be almost seven years ago because my little guy was a baby and, um, my friend, Randy light, who is a hypnotherapist here in Northwest Indiana, and she has enlightened living hypnosis and she is a great person. And, and she had been my hypnotist. She had been my hypnotherapist. And I had been, I, we had a partnership for many years where if I had a client who, this still happens. I have clients who they need something deeper, right? The communications coaching is great. We have tons and tons of tools. I give them tons of resources. Those resources may include marital counselors, right? They may include therapists. They may include therapists who specialize in certain things, especially for their kiddos or their families, right? And then um, and at one point too, I was working with Randy and saying, hey, I know this hypnotist and I would, they would be afraid. Sometimes clients would be afraid to go and meet a hypnotist and, and do all this stuff. And so I would say, I'm going to bring her in for a session. We're going to go to the place we normally meet. She's going to be there. She's going to do a rapid induction with you and, and I will be there too. So you and I have a code if there's something you feel is too freaky or you're afraid of, then you're going to either say the word or do the symbol. And I'm going to, you know, jump in for you. And, and I will be the one to speak up for you. If you feel like you're too afraid of that even, or you're afraid of hypnosis in general, and you know, you think something has happened. So it really created a safe place for people. And I would have a lot of clients who would say, I loved it. It was great, but I just want you to learn hypnosis. I just want to do it with you. You know, because I would then I would try to help them have a package if they wanted to move on and do more hypnosis with Randy. And they were like, I just I don't want to have to tell my whole story to somebody else. I just want to keep working with you. And I also had clients who would say, When are you going to become a therapist? And my answer to that was never. <laughs> I'm not going to enroll in that schooling. I want to have the um, ability to work with the clients I want to work with, you know. And so I will stay coaching. I'm not I'm not interested in becoming 
a licensed therapist and I have, there are so many amazing therapists in the region that I have great trust with that I love referring to and that I have used. Right. And so I'm, I'm not doing that, but with hypnosis, you know, I said to Randy at one point, I've had like three clients ask me the same question. And I said, do you train? And she said, I just decided I'm going to start a training program. So that was how that happened was I had had three clients ask me, I asked her if she was ever going to do it. She said, I just decided and decided the terms of it. And so I was in her beta class, which was totally fun. <laughs> the synchronicity of that is, yeah. um, is not, did not happen by accident. I'm sure um, things like that happen for a reason. So that's, that's really cool that you have also that tool in your box, so to speak. And I know that sometimes there can be a lot of taboo around something like hypnosis, but I feel like it's more and more part of the conversations, at least the ones I'm having <laughs> um, with people in general. And there really is so much that it can offer in way of healing and unblocking people to be able to level up and get past things so that they can gain self-acceptance and move on to just be more successful in whatever it is that they're pursuing. Yeah. And, you know, the training was about hypnotherapy, not just hypnotism, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not stage shows and like planting suggestions. It's right. this therapeutic process, which I definitely draw from, for me, a Jungian process of evolution and personal development. And so all my three keys to communication are based on that, this idea for self-awareness and then awareness in relationship using empathy and then just accountability. And so I use those three keys for, for all of my teachings and my, my coaching series. And so the hypnotherapy also has that as part of a standard. Right, right. Absolutely. And then also as a um, level two Reiki master. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. just keep adding to it. That's cool. What's funny was the Reiki actually came first. So oh. this is, when I was um, in my early twenties, my mid twenties, and I moved to the city and um, I was like, okay, I, I was supposed to be finding a therapist and a psychiatrist to help me with the medications and, and all of this. And I just was like, I feel very gun shy after this experience of um, wrong medication and a, a heavy suicide attempt, you know, that was very serious. And I was very, very lucky and very saved. I was absolutely saved. And so I was just like, I don't really want to get back into that. This is a big city. I'm learning all kinds of new things about it. I'm going to put that one on the shelf for now. I did stay in a phone relationship with the psychiatrist I had back in Muncie and help me step down off of the medication. And then I was like, I'm gonna see what I'm going to do. Well, unfortunately I started just substituting with pot and just really being like, this is great. And it sometimes was, and mostly wasn't, right? And I say kind of deluded about that. But um, so a couple of years into living in the city, being in my mid to late twenties at that point in time, I was working at a corporate office and um, as a a corporate production assistant and um, kind of the lowest person on the totem pole in the office, but applying and learning tons of things about at the time what we called new media, which is like all the digital platforms, right? It was like so, so, so nascent. But it was so fun. And so I loved all of that. And they had a really great mental health care insurance program. And when they saw me struggling with certain things, they were like, you know, you can actually see somebody check out this great catalog we have of providers. And there were some amazing people in there. And I happened to be kind of um, uncovering some sort of repressed memory stuff. And that felt super scary to me. And I was like, there is no way I want to work with just anybody. 
So there was one provider in their catalog. Her name was Rose Maddox. And um, I believe she's still in practice and she's amazing. And she's in Oak Park now. And at the time she was with a place in Chicago and they were in my catalog. And I had a couple of phone calls with her asking just these questions. I called her back because I was like, I think I want to work with her, but I'm so afraid, right? I asked her the same things over again. And she was like, I'm here when you're ready. And I just was like, okay, that was helpful. And she was a Reiki provider. She did um, soul retrievals. She did all this crazy stuff that was so new. And she called herself an energy therapist. And I had never heard this term and it's still rare, but um, Judith Orloff uses it now. And they're, they're actually hopefully trying to create some schools and medical schools that will start to do this because you know, insurance providers are once again, after the roaring 90s and the, the burst and all of that, they're finally 30 years later, bringing back some of these things like acupuncture and um, hypnosis and some of these things and saying, yes, we will, in certain circumstances, you know, um, we will support these and pay for these. And so I got very lucky of just being at the right place at the right time for like a three-year window where I got to connect with Rose and I got monthly Reiki from her and, um, and therapy sessions for years and it was so, so healing for me. And at one point in time, she was doing a training and I was really curious about it. And my husband and I, who were engaged at the time, were like, let's do this together. We'll call it our marriage counseling. <laughs> so we did a Reiki workshop and we got um, attuned and it was so fun. We were like, we could just use this with each other. And we both have a very... Um, skeptic mind, which I am just hugely like, I still think you should bring your skepticism into it. That helps you stay safe, you know? And once it was over, he was like, it was super fun, but I don't think we need the Reiki channel to do what we were doing. And I was all like, oh, the system is safer and blah, blah, blah. But years and years later, hundred percent, I agree. We don't need the Reiki channel to do what we were doing. And I think that systems are healthy to have in place when I'm working with clients. So at home, you know, my husband and I, we just your energy because you do that whether you know it or not. <laughs> I mean, it's just so cool that you have all of these specialized tech techniques um, for your clients and the people that you're helping. And you said something a minute ago about, you know, she was doing and suggesting all of these crazy things, but I guess to me, they're the least crazy of all of the options in regards to healthcare and taking care of yourself. Um, and in many ways, these things are not new necessarily. They're just new to us, to the Western part of the world. But a lot of these things have been in practice and helping people for hundreds of years. Yeah, so true. And I think, I think honestly, that's sort of what we're going through right now is sort of like this systemization detox, you know, because in the Western world, you know, going back to Descartes, right, we went to this, the 1700s and the medical model of this concept of like, we have to study it, we have to compartmentalize, we need to, this is helpful for understanding and for data. And we just got more and more and more like that. And so if anybody has ever read or heard about the Red Book by, you know, Jung's Red Book, where he like, he was giving these speeches on these systems and he was going home and having these channel downloads on like these, you know, dream connections and things that were so quote out there compared to the system he was teaching. And he was like, I don't want to get sick because I believe in the systems, but I also know the systems are limited, you know? And that was how he like made his peace with it. And I just feel like we sort of come full circle from that where we really did systems to death and to our detriment. And now we're finally coming back from it as a global society. Yeah, well, I could really go down all kinds of rabbit holes with you with everything that you just said there. <laughs> and maybe one day we'll do that. Um, 
but I want to give you space to talk about your coaching particularly. And I want our uh, discussion to definitely include how you help people and, and what it means to pull all these pieces of the puzzle together to meet people in a place where they're at so they can get to where they want to be. I love being able to be in a place where I can overtly talk about that now, because the truth is I've always been doing it. Like I said, the Reiki was there before I ever started the practice. Right. And so, um, I would covertly turn Reiki on sometimes and just be like, you know, I can feel something happening for this person. There's a gut issue or whatever. Right. And with my cynical mind, I'd be like, or my skeptical mind, rather, I'd be like, um, that could be, or maybe not. I'll just turn it on just in case. And I'll send the best intention. And it is what it is. Right. And I, um, I was like, eventually people started really understanding more about Reiki and people were using it more often. And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to go to another level of certification. And as I practice this, I'm going to really talk about it with my clients and let them, you know, be deciders. Do they want this or not? And, um, and then I, you know, it was testing the waters in some ways, which was very interesting and figuring out like, was there a good way to do that as a system? So um, the fact is I still just continue to just sort of conglomerate it all together and to have it be kind of just how I connect with people. So reading the body language, reading the micro expressions, using the intuitive feelers, you know, having Reiki on or off or just that energy channel, like being conscientious for me about like, am I taking their stuff with me or am I not? Like I've done so much work with people who themselves are maybe massage therapists or spa owners or, um, you know, any kind of esthetician or, you know, those kinds of like kind of pseudo healer practitioners or even healer practitioners and to be like, how are you setting your boundary? How are you detoxing from someone else's stuff, right? How are you being very conscientious about that? Because that's also a part of communication. It's that esoteric part that I just love that we can all talk about now, because for me, it really has all been there. You know, like I was three years old in 1976, the bicentennial running around a trailer park called Freedom Acres in a pair of bell-bottom pants that my mom made out of curtains that were red, white, and blue, right? With my little three-year-old hair flopping in the wind. <laughs> Like that is my spirit. That's who I am. <laughs> and I'm like, now I can be that person. I don't have to don the business jacket every single time. <laughs> Take the mask off. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that's little Keela. <laughs> well, I, I just think it's amazing. Just all that encompasses of you and who you've become based on everything that you've been through. How are you how are you including all that you've been through in the way that you parent and also homeschool, by the way, which is <laughs> yeah. just another amazing layer of awesomeness. Thank you. That one just doesn't give me any compensation, but it gives me the, the biggest long-term payoff, right? Like seeing these children learn and love learning and not have this like negative sense of self based around their learning. I'm just like, oh, I just love that this is an option. What I love too is like when I'm with grownups and they're like, I wish I could go back to school and be taught by, <laughs> by somebody like you, right? Yeah. I feel, I feel the same way. So the way that it informs my parenting um is oh gosh, when I first became a mom, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a fraud. I'm a total fraud. Like I can't coach anymore. Like I thought I had this down and I don't really, because so many old habits were coming back. Right. And so I really, again, had to take that deeper look at self and be super, super honest. And I found some great guides and teachers in that. And now there are so many people. I mean, if you just Google cycle breakers or cycle breaking mom or cycle breaking parenting or parent, you know, breaking the parenting cycle, like there is just a plethora of stuff out there now. And I'm so, so grateful for that. 
So for me, it's just informed that like in every single interaction, which again, this is the three keys to communication, in every single interaction, I want to employ the first and second keys and the third of accountability. The first being self-awareness, the second being empathy for myself and others. And that third piece is accountability. So in every single interaction, I'm employing those things. And, and that's my challenge over and over and over. Just yesterday, my husband was doing something. It was old pattern. I snipped at him. He got really mad at me and I just shut down. And I like was like silent for two hours. And I'm in my head being like, this is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You cannot freeze him out, you know? And then being like, okay, I hear you. I'm not gonna do it forever. This is how I don't yell at him. You know, just like back and forth for like two hours in my head, like really being so like trying not to be triggered in the old ways, you know? And by the evening we were taking the kisses to the nutcracker and then the car, I just like trigger it again. And I was like, I'm shutting down again. I'm gonna be nice talking to the kids and being like, this isn't about you. I'm mad at daddy. It has nothing to do with you guys. You know, even if we're talking about parenting it's not your fault and I love daddy still you know like and it's so much to do in the moment and it feels so doable to me now after <laughs> 10 years of practice because I've been a mom for a decade <laughs> oh my gosh I think all that you just described with that interaction with your husband was like a really advanced way of when a lot of us say let's try to respond and not react yep and that is and that's it and that's totally in a nutshell and like you know, so then, and then this is the best to me this morning, my husband was like, okay, we both have a work break, you know, let's sit down with some coffee at the table and let's talk about yesterday. And I was like, a plus for being the one to do it. Cause I was like, Ooh, I do not want to have to be the one to do it this time. And I was like, this lets me know that we really are like in sync with like trying to progress forward because it's a goal for both of us to identify, first of all, what are our old habits? And then this is a new step for us. We're both trying to be like, oh, that little boy or girl didn't get their needs met in some way. You know, for all our parents' best intentions, this is the thing that was lacking that we have to then figure out how to give ourselves. And um, it feels really good to be in a place where I can go, oh, that happened. And I don't have to hold a grudge against somebody for it. It feels so amazing. <laughs> I think that's does. I'm turning 50. <laughs> no, I. that sounds like a magical a magical relationship. I mean, the progressiveness of that type of connection and to be able to say, and especially have the man, and I don't want to gender do you know, it. marriages <laughs> either, but, you know, it, but, you know, stereotypically, he would have not been the one to initiate that conversation. So to, to have that connection with somebody that you both want to show up and you both want to grow and learn and work through, I mean, you guys have obviously been at this for a while and you're, um, yeah, you're amazing, uh, mind and the way that you've changed your brain is obviously a key factor in that. Oh man, and I, I'm going to take credit for that, honestly, and give him credit too, because not just stereotypically, but historically with that particular man, <laughs> I don't want to bring it up, right? And again, so it was, to me, it was just like, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad. And then, um, and then also not for me to get stuck on it because one of my old patterns, I'd be like, oh my gosh, you did this differently. It's all going to be better and different. And like, kind of like diluted, you know, with like, oh my gosh, I never have to have this struggle anymore. And like, you know, we, we have, it was 10 years of being married without kids. We did so much work. And then we were like, I think we were ready, ready to be parents, you know? And then we were like, oh no, it's all hard again. <laughs> and then 10 years then of working as a family unit and putting our kids 
first and learning how to still put ourselves first for ourselves individually, right? So if there's so many challenges and I feel like, I don't know if this is true, but I really do feel like parenting is harder than it's ever been because it's such a rapidly changing world and we just don't have the guides and mentors and um, experience, the lived experience of the people around us that we used to call on. We don't have those same communities, you know? Mm-hmm. And the bonus of this is because of such a rapidly changing world, we're seeing those challenges and fixing them in real time, which is super cool. Yeah. And, you know, I agree with you on that too. And uh, a previous guest of this podcast, Angie Ariola, she is a, a youth counselor, um, speaks a lot about the same thing, how it's so much harder to parent. It's so much harder to be a kid right now than ever before. And uh, circling back to with just the work that you said that you and your husband did 10 years prior to having kids, I wish that was just like sort of a mandated thing, to be honest with you. I wish it was something like the importance of really connecting and healing yourself and helping each other heal and really diving into that interconnection with each other prior to bringing little people into this world should absolutely be a thing that is just pretty much necessary and everybody has to do it. I wish that was (laughs) real. Yeah, I know, right? But I mean, again, it's definitely not the cure-all because we certainly had to redo all the work, but at least how we had done it before, right? And we had this template, but you know, I, there, someone asked me recently in a support group that I also moderate someone said you know what's the secret to a long marriage and I was like oh I'm gonna steal George Harrison's wife's response to this which is just don't get divorced (laughs) because we're pretty basic right (laughs) and I said you know we've been married 20 years and we've been on the serious brink of divorce twice and each time you know it just happened to work out that we were like okay I think I'm willing to put in all the legwork I think I understand what it is and if you're in I'm in you know and like or I'm not going to hold a grudge against you if we break up we both got to that place it was like okay this this is doable again and um I just think that's the reality of just like it's you know it's not a prison and if you want to keep working at it it can be done but it's not easy and nothing is. I think neither, neither one of those choices is easy, you know, to stay or go. And it's really, for me also, I got that template of like taking medications. I would have to look at like, what are the things I'm trying to fix? What are the long-term effects? Which one outweighs the other at this point in time? And it's the same thing for like stay or go in relationships for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, choose your heart, right? That's really what yeah. it comes down to. It's hard to stay and it's hard to go. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> This conversation could literally go on for days because I just feel like there's so much to talk to you about, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, Keila, tell us where we can connect with you and how we can find you and work with you. Okay. So I do have a website, coachkiki.com. You can email me directly at ask at coachkiki.com. It's K-I-K-I. And there is a coaching eligibility quiz there. So if people go and they, they, you know, check out the main page, you go to what I do, it says coach. And then there's a thing that says, you know, if you want to work with me, click here and you can take that quiz and you can find out, you know, if coaching is right for you, because it sends me your responses and I connect with you right away. And then I also have that parenting newsletter that's going out now, which I just, I love it. It's my heart and soul right now. And so it is buildbetterhumans.substack.com. And it's got my podcast on mindfulness and it's got access to my website and it's got 
all kinds of thoughts. And it's got um, some content coming out from a book I'm working on called 365 Days of Mood Tools, which is really, it's the tools that I have used to help manage all of my own mental consumer, you know, mental health consumer challenges to get to the point for me where I don't use medication. Again, I did that with guides, with, you know, therapists, counselor, practitioners, like, um, you know, making sure that that's the case and also checking in. I still see these people sometimes. I still check in like their annual appointment to be like, how are you doing? So go without meds, you know, um, because to me, that's super important. So, but I do think it's doable depending on where you are in your crisis and your journey. And I think that no matter where you are in your crisis or your journey, having that little daily devotional in your pocket that says there are tools you can use and you have some, again, control over your response and what you're growing and doing is really, really important in eradicating the mental health crisis that we are in right now globally. That was just... That was just so magical to hear you speak on all that. And I am so excited to just watch everything that you're putting out into the world. And um, you know, I think you might be hearing from me to partake in the coaching that you offer right. because, you know, I, I don't know, you've never, I certainly don't know everything about anything. And um, this conversation today has really emphasized um, how much I feel like I could probably benefit from what you offer. So thank you for just sharing everything that you did today. Thank you. This was really fun. I really loved this conversation. I love talking to you. Yeah, it's it's so much fun. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Um, thank you for everything that you shared today. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Kayla speaks very frankly here about how she arrived to where she is now. But I just want to stop and acknowledge the transparency. Thank you, Kayla, for showing yourself and being real about your journey. I appreciate you so much. The work Kayla does gives me hope for us all to respond rather than react, even in the toughest, most triggering situations. Some of my takeaways today and things I'm thinking deeper on include meeting your own potential, not just what someone else has assigned to you. Inherited generational negative emotions. This really had me thinking a lot about how thoughts and beliefs within my own family caused harmful suppression of emotion to the very serious degree of even manifesting disease. The fact that we can work through it and break free from it is a fantastic realization. Breaking fight flight into moving parts of our bodies, moods, and thoughts so that we may have tools to control our responses. All the ways to connect with Keela are in the show notes. Please follow her on social media. Check her out on her own podcast, In Tune Podcast, her blog, and reach out to work with her so that you may reach your higher potential this year. New this year for 2023, I am going to be introducing more tangible ways for us to start supporting each other better. If you love this space, I am asking you to consider a small monetary donation to help with costs associated with keeping it going. 
I'm so thankful to share such awesome conversations with you and your help is what keeps it afloat. There's links in the show notes for that as well, as well as ways to stay connected with me. Give me your feedback. Tell me what you want to hear in future episodes and tell me what your own takeaways are. Also, please remember to share this podcast, the episode, and take the time to rate and review it. I appreciate you and I'm so grateful for you. Thanks for all the love and I'll see you next time.